Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds, but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. You're listening to the Art of Maxims of Napoleon. Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Earworm Network. I am Yaga Malark. We're going to be covering a few more of those Napoleonic maxims today. But before we get into that, uh, this last weekend I went to MizCon, as I was talking about before, preparing a live lecture. And there is absolutely a different component to talking about this material on the show and talking about it in a live lecture. For instance, here on the show, I am looking at my window, and that's what I'm going to look at for the next half hour. And it's a blo- even a blocked out window, so I'm not distracted by the things going on outside. So really, I'm just looking at a pane of wood, and that is where my eyes will remain fixated for the next, you know, half hour as we're sitting here, half hour, 45 minutes. But when I'm doing a, a live lecture, of course, you're standing up in front of this crowd of people, you know. Uh, the people who attended this lecture, I think we had like 15 or 20 people. Like it, was, it was decent. It was honestly more than I was expecting because, as y'all know, this information that I present is dry-ish. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not here doing one of those like super funny shows. I'm not saying I'm not a funny guy. I'm just saying that, like, this isn't the most... When I think about a con, I think of, like, bombastic. I think of, you know, people who are in character, extremely animated in what they're doing and what they're saying. And, you know, while I can be physically animated, the point of the matter is, you know, this is a history lesson. This is schoolwork. This is academia that you and I are engaging in right now, trying to learn more and understand more about our given topic. And I feel like a lot of people, at least from my perception, wouldn't be as open to that. But, you know, like I said, I had a fair few people, the majority of them, you know, I had a call of hands at the beginning, and a vast majority of them were folks who did some sort of intellectual gaming. Often online gaming was their particular focus. And so the the lecture went well. I, I really enjoyed it. But, you know, you're sitting up there and you can see people occasionally check their cell phones or kind of lean over and, and talk to whoever they're sitting with. And you never know. You don't know if they're sitting there being like, ugh, I'm so bored. Or if they're, you know, making sure they're checking in on their kid. Or the person leaning over is like, wow, that was a, a decent point. It raised this idea. So it was, yeah, it was good. I, I Overall, I enjoyed it. It's a totally different feel than sitting here and talking to y'all all over the world from the very comfortable seat in my office, staring at this very well-known pane of wood at this point. Um, and that lecture is going to be going up. I believe uh, our editor caught it on tape, and so that will be going up on the YouTube. And I know I've promised a lot of things on the YouTube, and I will start delivering, I promise, 
This isn't one of those vain things. It's like, oh, you just wait forever. It'll happen eventually. <laughs> no, you won't have to wait forever, but it will happen eventually. And there is this live lecture, I think, that we got. So uh, if you want to see that, it'll be on, on YouTube. And it's uh, a synopsis of what we've kind of done up to this point. Of course, we're, I was talking quite a bit about Clausewitz and Napoleon because those are the two that are on my mind most recently. They're the ones that we've been studying most recently. So a good portion of the lecture is kind of combining those ideas together. But, you know, I, I really enjoyed putting it together. I, I enjoyed doing it and, and supporting MizCon in that particular way. A, a wonderful little... Uh, community event. People travel from all over for it too. I didn't realize there were folks that came over from like Western Washington and this was one of their favorite cons and they came every year. There was a, a really popular author. I can, oh, of course I cannot remember what her name was, but she goes every single year because it's one of the highlights of her year apparently. So our little con in little Missoula, Montana is uh, pretty all right. I enjoyed it anyways. So uh, that was, that was excellent. Um, the other thing I'm really excited for in my wargaming world is that we have a northern cistern realm, which I think I've talked about, the, the relative isolation of Stygia for the majority of my uh, time here. You know, I didn't realize how isolated Stygia was before I went out east and was in an area where there were dozens of realms within an hour driving distance, which was insane to me. Just insane to be able to have that many people and that spread out and, and so much rich participation in the area. You know, meanwhile, here in Western Montana, it was Stygia and... No, that's my point. My point is made. Like, we didn't have anybody else. The nearest realm to us was about six and a half hours away. So these things called invasions, which, you know, when I was living in Durdamarian and going there, they would occasionally have invasions of one of the surrounding realms. And those realms would have invasions of Durdamarian. And it's not nearly as aggressive as it sounds. It's basically the members of that realm saying, okay, instead of practicing at our normal spot, we're going to drive a little further and go and join somebody else's practice and go and play with them for a while. And it was really cool. It was a fantastic community building uh, exercise. And you got to, you know, fight with a bunch of other people and it became this, you know, this really cool social thing. And so we are so pleased here in Stygia to have another realm that has popped up. Now, in true Montana fashion, our close realm is still two hours away, but that is much closer than six hours away. And so we are actually going to be going up, um, at the time of this recording anyways, tomorrow. And we're going to be doing an invasion of Frostwall. And even though my elbow is still somewhat tweaked, and I know now in my mid-30s, that if something is tweaked, I need to listen to it. Uh, I'm still going up as, you know, kind of what I see as an ambassador. Because new folks come into any of our communities, whether it be Belagarth or SCA or Warhammer or War Machine or or even something like Call of Duty, other ST, uh, RTSs, you know, any of, any of our, our communities thrive and continue with new people. We have to be willing to let things change because when new people come in, they bring their ideas, their impressions, their, their life experiences with them. And inevitably things will change to suit the new dynamic. But this idea of incorporating people is important. You know, it's, it's, it's good to welcome as well. Like having something that starts in the middle of a vacuum, like it speaks to the persistence and determination of Sumatai and the friends that he cultivated when he got here, that he was able to make Stygia as successful as it is. We really do owe him a, a debt of gratitude because 
it's hard. Like being able, having to do that in a vacuum, having to do that without any other realms close by to support, you know, close by to, you know, engage people and bring them in. Like the only people us Stygians interacted with for a, you know, the good first portion of our, of our existence was just each other. It was a good thing that most of us liked each other. I mean, that, that definitely helped out, but being able to, as a, as a more experienced fighter, go to another realm and sit down and just shake the hands and like meet people and be like, Hey, you are welcome here. I'm a person, I'm a veteran who's been around for a long time and you are welcome. I would love to share some of my information with you. I would love just to sit and hear your ideas on what's going on. And that conversation is huge. That conversation is the reason that people stick around because the more experienced, the older like veteran fighters or the veteran gamers, people look to us. Even if we don't necessarily consciously acknowledge it, people look to us and take their cues from us because we represent the, the bedrock, the foundation of whatever community we're a part of. And so our actions, our words, our demeanor, that makes a difference in terms of bringing people in. And so again, we're, we're stoked. <laughs> I mean, we are just stoked to have another realm that is this close by that we can actually engage in this with. But I know that part of this is us also really just wanting to cultivate that other realm and cultivate a good relationship. Kind of like I saw in the East, which was, which was really, really cool. I, I enjoyed that aspect of, of Belgarth in the East. So I'm looking forward to that next week. You know, or next episode, you'll probably hear more about my adventures up in Frostwall. I might even grab an interview or two while I'm up there, if I'm feeling sprightly. But, uh, yeah, no, I, I, uh, community, I guess, was the, the, uh, lecture or the theme of my introduction today was community and how it's important for us to build it up. And, and, uh, and one more slight, uh, tyra, um, uh, the word for going off topic and doing something else. There is a word for it. I don't know it right now, but we're going to do that thing. Tangent. It's a tangent. My unit right now is going through some growing pains as well. There was a decent period there where we were not recruiting because there had been a threat to quality. And so whereas other units had brought in a lot of people who were very disruptive or were not very good for the unit's fabric, at that time the Dark Angels just sort of shut down stopped recruiting almost entirely. And that left a gap between when that happened and I think it was like five or so years later, it was five years of missing out on recruitment that they finally started bringing people back in. And one of the unintended consequences of this is it left a huge gap, not just in terms of the time out, but in terms of people. And so a lot of the newer folks coming in were not on the same page as the, the older folks. Like they had all been together for, you know, at least five years at that point. They had learned one, each, one another's idiosyncrasies. They had kind of settled into an agreed upon form for which that our little subculture was going to operate. And then you start bringing in new blood. And that new blood, of course, has its own experience. It has its own way of looking at the world. And sometimes it becomes disruptive. And I've seen it happen in other units too, where you have this old guard and the new young bucks who are kind of going at it, trying to decide the future of the event or the, uh, of the unit. And my perspective, if you want my two cents, is that both opinions are valid. You know, it, you know, one shouts over the other and the other, you know, gets a defensive and tries to shout over the other one, but really somewhere in the middle is probably the best place to be. 
Now, not all new ideas are good. Don't get me wrong. Like there's, there's definitely naysayers and there's definitely people who just stir the pot to stir the pot. And they may not have the positive contributions that other more sober minded and useful in this particular way, individuals might have. So new ideas aren't automatically good, but they're not so also not automatically bad. I think we need to weigh them against what we know already does work. And so when we're talking about community, we're also talking about integrating all those new ideas too, whether it be a part of our unit or a part of our realm or a part of our local gaming group, whatever it is, we have to understand that all of us all the time are trying to meet each other halfway. Y'all weren't raised the same way I was. I almost 100% guarantee it. We did not come from the same background. Just like I cannot truly understand where you come from. You know, you had your own experience. You had your own life coming into this, this particular time in which you exist. And we have to be gentle with one another in that. And then we uh, devolved into a, uh, a small lecture on ethics. So, you're welcome. That one was for free. And now we're moving on to our Napoleonic maxims. Alright. Let us pick back up where we left off and begin with number 73. Now... Before we get into this, these first several maxims are going to deal with the idea of qualities that we're looking for in individual officer positions. Because as we've talked about previously, different skills, different temperaments, different mindsets are required for each of the different levels of responsibility within a, a military machine. And everybody has their place. You know, somebody with a calm, cool, calculating head who is well-versed in all the matters of the military and all the matters of, of running an army, well, that makes a great commander, right? As we've talked about. But we want somebody who's got hot blood. We want somebody who's, who's very driven, very directional, very emotional to be dealing more with line elements because you need somebody who's willing to get people up and get them moving. A calm, cool, collected head works great from an objective point of view, but if we're trying to get in there, if we're trying to take that hill, as it were, you need somebody there who's got the energy to drive that forward. So, with that in mind, let's continue with number 73. The first qualification of a general-in-chief is to possess a cool head so that things may appear to him in their true proportions and as they really are. He should not suffer himself to be unduly affected by good or bad news. The impressions which are made upon his mind successively or simultaneously in the course of a day should be so classified in his memory that each shall occupy its proper place, for sound reasoning and judgment result from the first, from first examining each of these varied impressions by itself, and then comparing them all with one another. There are some men who, from their physical and moral constitution, deck everything in the colors of imagination. With whatever knowledge, talents, courage, or other good qualities they, these may be endowed, nature has not fitted them for the command of armies and the direction of the great operations of war. Now, some of what he's saying goes against some of the other ideas that we've heard from other commanders. You know, surprise, surprise, different experts on the matter differ on what qualities are good, on what... You know, th uh, things are actually going to be our focus. 
and it largely has to deal with the era in which we're talking about as well. In the time of Napoleon, many of these things were probably true, but in other times, in other wars, perhaps not. You know, and so let, you know, let's talk about this for a second. He's talking about not being unduly affected by good or by bad news. Now, the bad news makes sense. You know, we, we don't necessarily want to become angry or desperate or fearful in the face of whatever news may be being brought to us. But on the other side of things, we also want, don't want to be too jubilant at the delivery of good news. Now, why is that? Why, why wouldn't we want to fully experience the joy of good news? Well, that also puts us on tilt. It can put us into a place of complacency. It can put us into a place of expectation. I know that sometimes if I've been playing Warhammer 40k in my first round or two, I've been going really well. I've been getting my dice rolls. I've been getting the positioning that I wanted, you know, achieving some of the ob objectives I was going for. And sometimes it is easy to become elated and joyful and say, ah, I'm doing very well here. And you begin to feel very good about it. And then your opponent does something tricksy. You know, your Grey Knights player flashes some dudes behind you and, and exploits a weakness that you didn't notice in, the, in your own armor or a, a series of rolls goes against us. Well, at that point, because we were so high off of that initial good news, that low, that bringing down feels so much worse than if we had just stayed even keel, than if we had just tried to remain neutral in our minds. So that's what he's saying for this particular portion is we can't let ourselves be put on tilt. And normally if I'm talking about being put on tilt, I am talking about being made angry or fearful or intimidated or overwhelmed, whatever, whatever negative emotion usually is associated with that. But again, being elated, being complacent in our happiness, this is also a form of being on tilt. We are emotionally compromised in both of these situations. And so for a, for a real commander in chief, for somebody who's in charge of the whole military operation, they need to be in the middle. We, we need to be neutral. And that is something that is, is difficult to achieve. And most, most commanders throughout history have not had that quality. And you can see it throughout their campaigns. There's a reason that we look at the campaigns who have been influenced by the likes of Frederick the Great. Because it worked. You, had, you got somebody who was brilliant and you see these things play out with somebody who was perfect for the role that they were in. This is not often the case. Through the majority of history, the, the majority of military commanders have been very lackluster, which is why these standouts are so important and why we should probably try to emulate them the best we can in, in what we do with, with War of Gaming, at least. This next little part here, where he's talking about the impressions that have been made upon his mind and how they immediately have their own proper place and they're examined with one another. He's talking about having an analytical mind, a mind that is open to the information provided, not one that is distracted. That's another thing that's kind of understated here is the level of focus that he's calling for. Because I know that compartmentalizing information in my head like this is not very easy, with, especially with a lot of the distractions of the modern age. Now, I know that Napoleon didn't have access to a smartphone, which is probably a good thing because he would have used it to great effect, I'm sure. But the idea is there's no distraction in this particular mind. There is rapt attention and not over-attention. We're talking about a mind 
that is not vexed by being attention deficit, for instance, because they're able to hold something in their mind, they're able to pursue a thought and hold to it, but they're also able to examine the whole picture at the same time. And so it's not, we're not talking about an obsessive mind either. We're talking about an analytical mind, a mind that is looking to take in all information, process it, and come out with something that is an approximation of the best course of action in reality. Now, if we're being honest with ourselves, we know that the majority of us do not fit that description. I know me personally, as much as I would love to, as much as I would love to be the perfect commander that I read about in these books, I do not fit these descriptions, partially because nobody does. I don't just mean just you and I, but nobody does. What we're talking about here is an ideal form, much like with what Plato had discussed and Aristotle kind of followed up on, this idea of, of something that is the perfect form of an idea or an expression, and part of, of, of what it is is that it doesn't exist. Nothing can exist in its ideal form. And so when we're looking at this, of course, of course, having somebody who is basically a robot in their head to be able to analyze these things would be amazing. But we don't have that yet. Who knows what AI will bring to the future? One of the questions, if, you'll, if you watch the YouTube video of the lecture I gave, there was a, a man who was sitting in front who had uh, some amazing contributions and questions. I, I enjoy the conversation. I enjoy somebody who brings something up or says something in a way that I haven't thought of. Because again, I'm not the end-all say-all by any means on this particular topic. So it's wonderful. It's nice to have the conversation. But one of the questions he asked me was, what did I think AI would do in terms of war? And... I was kind of baffled at first by the question because, you know, my, my immediate response wanted to be, well, what doesn't it influence? I mean, on every single level of warfare, AI is already having a massive impact. Let's just talk about uh, trajectories, you know, being able to put in, okay, this is the ordinance that I'm using and we're going to go at this angle. The wind speed is this. Okay, cool. I know exactly where to go. We don't have to cite things like they did back in Napoleon's time where you were looking through a little slit being like, okay, well, I think this is where the cannonball's going to go. No, no, through the power of computing, we have way more accurate, way more deadly weaponry at the moment. Using computers to compile tactical information and come up with a, with a logical, cool, like, like what they're talking about here, impression, is already being used. Why are we doing that? I mean, even those of us who game online, gaming against some, some AI and you know, civilization, you crank it up to very, very, very difficult, and you're dealing with a, a, a machine that is designed to process this information and come up with the best tactical strategy or the best overall strategy. So honestly, <laughs> in some ways, our commander-in-chief does need to have some of the, uh, like a mechanical mind. Now, we still need to have the human element, in my opinion, but a lot of that work can be done by computers. It wasn't the way in Napoleon's time. But we can do it now. But I suppose when we're talking about war gaming, I doubt that we're going to be using AI for what we do. It would take the fun out of it. And so, again, we're trying to embody these, these qualities the best we can, knowing that we will fail, knowing that, that we will have drawbacks, that we will have personal flaws that get in the way of this ideal form, but also being gentle with ourselves and understanding that nobody, not even Napoleon himself, 
the author of this of these particular maxims, not even he fully embodied the values and virtues that he says are best for commanders. So that's that's worth a thought. That's worth a thought. And then of course this last part where he's talking about imagination and how imagination really has no place in actual the like military science. And really if you're an imaginative person, you probably shouldn't be anywhere near the top echelon of command. There's a couple of reasons for this, because immediately my impression of that is, well, you're wrong. Obviously, you definitely want somebody with imagination in that particular seat because you're going to be able to get some, some madcap strategies out of it. But if we think back to what was Clausewitz was saying in the same era, you know, he was talking about a commander who needs to be searching, but not inventive. And the idea there is to be able to look back in history, look back to what was already done in previous time periods by previous generals and apply what they did to our current situation. Try to find some tactical or strategic truth that can be then translated to where we are right now. And in many ways, you can't help but agree with this because there's a reason we call it military science. You know, chemists don't go out and try to reinvent the periodic table. The periodic table exists because it exists, and it is correct in, in the way that it kind of under, helps us understand chemistry and the chemical universe. There's no reason to go and reorganize things. There's no reason to go and be inventive in this particular case. We search for it, we see it on there, and we can move forward. It's like a building block, a foundation. We don't necessarily need to build new foundations constantly. Now, the place where I disagree with him on this, though, is when we've had some massive leap in military science or in technology. Technology is the big one. Trying to apply tactics and strategies that have worked in, in past times to something current that has totally different technology, that's where people run into problems, I think, because the exact situations that Sun Tzu found, the generals that he was writing about in, we will never see in our current era. You know, after my lecture, I'd had this guy come forward and he'd asked me, or maybe it was during the lecture, but he'd asked me um, why we didn't apply Sun Tzu's uh, ideas completely. You know, the, this idea that it was already done kind of perfectly in terms of analysis. Why would we go for anything else? And, you know, I had to sit there and think, and I'd, I'd, you know, I'd answered him in in the way that I could, but I've been thinking about that question ever since. And I kind of arrived at the same idea that you know, the sound principles, the principles, mind you, like we were talking about with Clausewitz, are sound. You know, those are things that we need to be applying. But again, Sun Tzu and the armies that existed at the time were completely different than they are now. And we need only look so early as like the, the world wars that only happened like a hundred years ago at this point. And during World War I, you had tactics that had been used throughout the, what was called the modern warfare period. That kind of started around the, the time of Napoleon and Clausewitz and continued on until the turn of the century. We had these massed movements of troops, artillery supporting, and the, the kind of warfare that we're talking about being supreme. You know, it was used all throughout the American Civil War. It was used through, you know, the Spanish-American War. That this was the style that was being used. And then came a massive jump in technology when we began to use machine weapons 
machine guns being you know preeminent among them when we started to get artillery that was far more lethal and had could be shot at longer range with greater accuracy the methods the techniques the strategies that had you know, propelled armies forward had given them an edge for near 150 years now resulted in absolute an absolute bloodbath for the side trying to do it you see it all the time throughout World War I. A group rises up out of the trenches, charges boldly into no man's land, and gets cut down to the man. Where these old tactics, these, these massed infantry movements, like trying to overwhelm a position, when you're dealing with machine weapons, there are, you have to use so many bodies to make that possible. You need to exhaust the enemy's bullet supply to truly make that possible. Or, or use numbers like which are usually not available in most circumstances. I mean, if you, if you look at like the Korean War, a lot of positions were able to be overrun with massed movement, but that was because of the sheer number of people bearing down. And you didn't see those sorts of numbers a whole lot during the First World War. And so the technology that existed at the time had completely challenged and completely wiped out the tactics that had previously been applicable. Now, the same principles the same basic theories still existed and were still sound. However, the, the environment had completely changed. Fast forward again to the Second World War. And you'd had the, the, the uh, Spanish Civil War that was kind of going on. You had the Soviets and the Nazis who were playing their, their technology game against one another there. It was the first time that Soviet tanks and Nazi tanks had interacted with each other. It had nothing to do with World War II. It had everything to do with this proxy war that was being fought in Spain, that was being used as a testing ground. All sides were watching that, saying, okay, what are the capabilities in this matchup? How can I improve the, the, improvement, or improve the performance of my country's tanks based on how I can see them interacting in this, this you know, play out of what's going on? And so you had the old way of thinking, right? The, the tactics had kind of caught up to World War I. And so when everything started kicking off, the French put in some really um, solid defensive works. Earthworks and such that would have worked amazingly in World War I would have done just fine defending their nation from an aggressing army. They had learned how to do this. And even though they had a much larger, larger army and a much better equipped army at the time and could have been far more active in the field, their understanding of war was still two decades before. And then Guadarian came in with Blitzkrieg and said, okay, we're going to take this new thing because air, it was air for this particular one. It was machine weaponry for World War I. That was the big change that made the, the need for new tactics, the need for a new military science uh, upgrade to occur. But in World War II, what you had were the fast-moving tanks and aircraft. The Stuka, in the, when we're talking about the Blitzkrieg, we're talking about a, a massive bombardment, an aerial bombardment that just sort of shakes the area to its core, followed by a hammer strike from the armored divisions, from the tanks who come up and just plow through. And once they plow through those defenses, they kind of turn around and you've got an envelopment on a position that previously was quite defensible, but was blown apart and, and had its um, continuity broken up by the air attack. And then when the armor comes in, it just kind of does a, a pursuit, right? It breaks what's there. And it's very, very, very similar to what we see in other areas, right? If we're talking about armor in terms of our cavalry, we've got this volley coming in. 
you know, this massive volley coming in that breaks up the the enemy's continuity, followed by a cavalry charge, because you never charge, right? We know this. We never do a, a charge against an unbroken unit. But in this particular case, because it was broken, they, they came barreling in. But that was because the tactics had not caught up to air warfare the way that it was. We're not talking the dogfighting that was happening in World War I. We're talking about a lot more involvement between the vehicles that are in the air and what is happening on the ground. It's not just air-to-air -air stuff, and it's not inaccurate bombings. We're talking about real aircraft development, real Air Force development at this time. And so it took a second for technology to catch up to this. And so anytime we see these jumps happen, again, old principles still apply. But we have to understand the new elements as they are. Again, tanks understood as CAV. Not in the same way as other CAV was, though, because, you know, if, again, if we think about Napoleon's time, CAV was primarily, um, you know, mountain melee. They were coming in with sabers, you know, cutting down folks and using that, like, scything maneuver to get through. A tank is, well, it's a tank. It's a, you know, it's a heavily armored horse with a heck of a lot of firepower. So, again, the, the principles still apply, but the technology itself has changed, and our reactions to that technology have to change as well. That was another question that I got afterwards was one of the fellows came up and he said, how do you prepare for when a new codex drops in Warhammer 40k? Like, how are we supposed to necessarily, how, how do we deal with that new information being on the field besides just fighting against it over and over and over again? And I said, well, you know, there's a lot of other great podcasts that do almost immediate analysis of what is in that book. And if you listen to a few of them, you'll pick some stuff up. The best thing I've found is to read the book yourself. And like, listen to other people too, hear their analysis, but make sure that we're looking at it ourselves and making our own assessment of what's going on. So, I just went on a 20-minute <laughs> tangent about this idea of imagination versus searching. And I suppose what I'm saying here is that even though Guadarian, for instance, the Blitzkrieg tactic looks new, it looked imaginative. It was actually just the application of knowledge from out the entirety of military history to the technology that was available. And their opponents didn't understand the technology in the same way that they did. Didn't understand the capabilities in the same way that they did, which is why they did so well in the first part of the war. And then, of course, the Allied uh, tactics caught up and they said, okay, we, we understand this lightning war a little bit more. We understand how to fight against it, how to fight with it. You know, and so it, it turned the tables. That brief tactical advantage afforded by this new technology, everything caught up. Everything kind of caught up at that point. So, yeah, yeah, we're looking for searching. We're not trying to come up with something completely new. We're not trying to, you know, imagine a situation which nobody else has ever imagined. That's not how military science works. Think about chemistry. There's always new breakthroughs in chemistry, but it is always building on the foundations of what we know works and what we know is true. So, technology matters. And, uh, and when we're talking about some of this stuff, like I said, it's important to remember the techno technological disparity between what Clausewitz and Napoleon were talking about and what we're dealing with now. And the two wars that kind of sum up the difference in the tactics and the technology that divides us from that form of war. Well, those are the two world wars. Finally, 23 minutes into this particular section, 
we are moving on. 74. To be familiar with the geography and topography of the country, to be skillful in making a reconnaissance, to be attentive to the dispatch of orders, to be capable of exhibiting with simplicity the most complicated movements of an army, these are the qualities that should distinguish the officer called to the station of the chief of staff. Chief of staff is, you know, the, the first mate. The chief of staff is the one who gets things done. The commander says, this is what I want. And the chief of staff is the one who, who gets the organization together to start moving in that direction. So the commander needs to be able to look at all this, this sort of like objective data, process it, and come up with the most sound strategy that they can for the situation. The needs, the mindset that is necessary for a chief of staff are very different. We're looking at something that is very far from imaginative. You need somebody who is organized. You need somebody who understands everything about their particular infrastructure and how it interacts with itself to the best of its degree. My wife, honestly, would make an amazing chief of staff. Her ability to understand various things that are going on, dispatch people to where they need to be, um, you know, come up with these you know, the complicated stuff that they're talking about here, making reconnaissance, being prepared. You know, these are things that, you know, I, I think that she would be <laughs> very skilled at. I'd listen to her, obviously. But being familiar with geography and topography for, for that we need to understand, of course, how those things interact. We need to be able to look and, as we've done before, analyze what do we do with ground that is difficult? What do we do with broken ground? What do we do with forests and rivers and mountains? Like, how do we handle all these things? These are, are details that a chief of staff needs to know and say, okay, well, the general wants us to maneuver through this area. Well, I know that there's a big thicket or a big marsh right here. So when these maneuvers are being executed, I'm going to make sure that the dispatches um, account for that particular bog or, or marsh or other obstruction that wasn't necessarily on the general's mind when they made the call in the first place. Now, again, we're not talking about completely disagreeing with the general's orders. That's not the place of the chief of staff, but making sure that those orders are executed in the most efficient way possible. That is what the chief of staff does. And so, again, the, the mindset, the talents that are required are a little bit different for the, you know, the, our chief, chief of staff. 75. A general of artillery should be acquainted with all the operations of the army, as he is obliged to supply the different divisions of which it is composed with arms and ammunition. His communications with the artillery officers at the advance post should keep him informed of all the movements of the troops and the management of his great park must be regulated by this information. It makes sense for the most powerful, damage potential-wise, arm of the military to know what everybody else is doing. The last thing you want is to be firing upon your own position, firing upon your own men. And the way that we get around this is to make sure that we know where we're firing. That's why the, the mast fire was stopped after a certain point in medieval battles. You know, a lot of times you'd start and there would be this archer exchange. You know, these, these rains of arrows, these volleys of arrows that were going back and forth as the melee fighters are walking towards each other. But any wise commander stopped that the second that they, that they met because 
you know, casualties on your side are just as possible when firing into a group formation. So again, making sure that we're like, okay, well, the enemy has moved. Our people are now, are there now. So we need to adjust our positions of fire accordingly. And so to understand this, the general of the artillery also needs to kind of understand how the other branches move, what their kind of overall plan and techniques are. So they can predict this as well, because it's not always going to be the case that there can be that instantaneous communication, especially right here. We're not talking about folks who had radios or could communicate in a very quick way. They had to use flags, they had to use drums, they had to use runners to be able to deliver all of this information. And so having somebody who is already competent, who can look out there and say, okay, the cav is moving. I know kind of where they're going and where we need to shift our fire to. Okay, the infantry is going to be going toward this area. I know that our commander does this sort of thing when the infantry is doing that. I know I'm being extremely vague here, but that's because the general of the artillery is playing specifically off of the overall general, of what their techniques are, of what their ideas and approaches to war are, because that's how they manage their section. That's how they manage what they're supposed to do. And of course, they've got the boom, boom. And so <laughs> understanding like logistics and supply is important because you need to be able to make sure that your wagon trains, your ammunition and whatnot are going to be able to get where they need to get. So a general of the artillery needs to be acquainted with all operations of the army. Clausewitz would have loved to hear Napoleon say that. It would have been one of the greatest compliments he would have received because, of course, we know that Clausewitz was an artillery officer and a teacher. And so, you know, he, he would be pleased to know that this, this kind of expectation is being made of his position. And we know that it was, he's, his book is one of the thickest, if not the thickest tome that we have on military science. And so the guy's understanding the dude's, the dude's connection with the overall workings of the army are precisely what Napoleon is talking about here. And so look no further than Clausewitz if you're looking for an ideal general of the artillery. Number 76, to reconnoiter rapidly defiles and fords, to obtain guides that can be relied upon, to interrogate the clergyman and the postmaster, to establish speedily an understanding with the inhabitants, to send out spies, to seize the letters in the mails, to translate and make an abstract of their contents, in short, to answer all the inquiries of the general-in-chief on his arrival with the whole army, such are the duties which come within the sphere of a good general of an advanced post. An advanced post, of course, is one that is, as it, as it sounds, advanced or in front of the rest of the army. And it would be easy enough, and I'm, I'm assuming that it would be, you know, just about average, for a general of an advanced post to be able to arrive, set up, and have a understanding you know, a, a vague understanding of the surrounding countryside and the positionings, of course, of the enemy. That's one of the big ones. But the rest of this is thorough. The rest of this teaches us, who, who may be looking at this and saying, okay, well, the advanced post, its whole point is to get there, kind of understand the area a little bit, but mostly hold down the fort. No, no, a good, a good general of the advanced post, like Napoleon is saying, we're talking about somebody who needs to be directly involved with all of the information required to operate in that area. You know, somebody who is not just familiar with the topography, but is familiar with the people 
and with you know everything there is to know. I mean, look at this this list here. I mean, to interrogate the clergyman and the postmaster. Why why those two specifically? Well, the clergyman knows the people in the area. You know, we're talking about a government that uh, also at the time, you know, this is a government that is overwhelmingly secular, and to interrogate a clergyman, there's no real qualm about that. But of course, the clergymen are are, are integrated. They're integrated into the noble circles. They're integrated into the minds of the people nearby because we're talking Catholics. And so you've got a lot of confessions that keep the, the clergy grounded in what people are thinking and feeling. And then, of course, you've got their interaction with the nobility. So all these things combined make a clergy person at the time a very good font of knowledge. But on the same idea, the postmaster. You know, somebody who knows where everything is. Okay, how do I get from point A to point B? Because as I'm sure that you've observed, the post people can get anywhere. And they're required to go some really, really, really interesting places and to learn their areas in a very detailed fashion. Like I had a friend who once uh, was a newspaper delivery person. And I would ride with her on occasion when I was bored in the morning. And her familiarity with the places that she went were, of course, very deep. She wasn't even from Missoula, but she could navigate areas of this city that, you know, I vaguely understood, but that she understood. And so if somebody really wanted to get an understanding of that area, I'm a native Missoulian, but I'm not somebody who would want to ask about that, not above somebody like her who had been directly involved in getting from place to place. And, again, at the time, we're talking about people who pass letters between generals. So the postmaster, a very good person to know. A very good person to interrogate. And of course the defiles and fords, making sure that you know how to move around the area, that's that's hugely important. Spies. Spies just as a general rule are very important to any sort of military operation because again you're uh, we're, we're trying to deceive our enemy at the same time that they're trying to deceive us. And so we get around that by trying to understand what they're doing. Hence the spies. And it's the same idea with seizing letter in the mail and having to translate that and make an abstract of their contents, which is to say, kind of bring an understanding without a general in chief having to read everything, having to go through every single letter that's been seized, having to go through every single dossier that's been made. You know, it's, it's the job of one of these generals of an events post to say, okay, strip it down, bare bones that bad boy, and send it up the chain with the, uh, the information that they need. That's it. So all the inquiries of a general in chief on their arrival with the whole army, all of it. These are the duties. Now, how do we apply this to wargaming? Well, we don't really have this position much in wargaming because a lot of times we're fulfilling this idea. I would guess that maybe, you know, yeah, I'm not even sure. Yeah, send me an email if you know how to apply this one, because I'm pretty sure this one's just a historically applied one, because we don't use a whole lot of this stuff. Like, I'm not going around and seizing people's, you know, emails or, or breaking into their phone to see their messages. One thing, it's not important to necessarily know that information, but it's also not necessary within kind of the, the circles that we walk in. We can know those things already. All we have to do is listen to gossip. Listen to a little bit of gossip, and you know everything about a given area. I mean... Take it with a grain of salt, of course, but like enough gossip can give you a pretty good idea of the situation that we're walking into, either in a realm or in an event. But if you're dealing with actual army movements, having a good advanced general is uh, fantastic. Okay, 
Commanders-in-chief are to be guided by their own experience or genius. Tactics, evolution, and the science of the engineer and the artillery officer may be learned from triists, but generalship is acquired only by experience and the study of the campaigns of all the great captains, Gustavus Adolphus, Turian, Frederick, and also Alexander, Hannibal, and Caesar have all acted on the same principles, to keep your forces united, to be vulnerable at no point, to bear down with rapidity upon important points, these are the principles which ensure victory. It is by the fear which the reputation of your arms inspires that you maintain the fidelity of your allies and the obedience of conquered nations. You know, this is kind of tapping into some of the stuff we've already said. Like you have to, we have to depend on ourselves. All the good officers in the world, all the good information in the world doesn't do us any good if we're not actually competent at what we're doing and experienced. As I've said before, it's a totally different experience when I first started fighting, reading Miyamoto Masashi's Book of Five Rings, than it is reading it now. There's a lot of talks about the, the, like the timing and the tactics and the, even just the techniques themselves that make so much more sense to somebody who's had more time with the material, uh, to somebody who's been able to experience it and kind of live it in a more, a more yeah, experience of a veteran sort of way. So these are the folks you want as a general. You don't want to appoint people there who have no idea what they're doing or fresh out of West Point or something. Like we're, we're talking about folks who need to be steeped in knowledge and experience. And, you know, it's kind of what we're doing right here. When he talks about studying the classics, we're doing that here. You know, you and I, we're going back and studying the great military thinkers of history and trying to apply what they did to what we're doing and we have access to all these. We can study the battles too, but we also have access to all of these you know, books on military science. And he says, avail yourself of them. Make sure that we, that we use them to the best of our ability. And of course, the fear of the reputation of our arms. We always want people to go, oh, you know, don't want to betray those people because woof, can they bring the pain? So something to think about. We're going to do... 78, and I think we're going to be done for the time. So, 78. Read over and over again the campaigns of Alexander, Hannibal, Caesar, Gustavus, Turian, Eugene, and Frederick. Make them your models. It is the only way to become a great general and to master the secrets of the art of war. With your own genius enlightened by this study, you will reject all maxims opposed to these great commanders. You know, hearkening back to that idea of we're looking for searching, not inventive. We're looking for looking at what, uh, you know, seeing what actually works. You know, looking back in history, there were, there were so many times when I first started out fighting that I would come up with this imaginative tactic in my mind, only to have it fail when I first tried it on the field. A lot of times because it depended on way too much timing, way too many things to go right at, you know, the same time other things were going right. When... I know full well now that all plans have a, you know, two-second expiration date <laughs> once they hit the field. Um, and so they were so contrived, so complex, that there was no possible way that they could properly work in the context of what we were doing. And I didn't start getting any sort of good until I started going back and saying, okay, what works? Okay, the oblique, localized numeric superiority. These are concepts which apply to any, uh, you know, faction of war. 
doesn't matter what time or technology we're working with, you know, local numeric superiority is a big deal. Superiority of arms, big deal. You know, there, there are things throughout all of history that make sense throughout all of history. And again, we're doing exactly what he said. We're looking back at the great generals, the great military thinkers, you know, of our species and saying, what did they do right? And how can we apply it to what we do now? Hence the point of this show. So thank you, Napoleon, for <laughs> justifying my existence. And uh, yeah, we'll catch you guys next time. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't had enough of the art of wargaming in your life, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get in touch with the show directly, you can email us at artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Earworm Network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, Fried Squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at earverm.com. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark, signing off. <laughs> <laughs>